0: Hi, welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Today's guest is dead. He died almost nine years ago. He called himself Dangerous Dan. During the Vietnam War, Daniel Marvin was a special forces captain and an assassination team leader for the US government. He commanded a special forces team that controlled civilian or regular troops of the militant Buddhist Wahao sect in the district of An Phu on the Cambodian border. They ran cross-border operations into Cambodia. Remember the U.S. was not in Cambodia? Remember we were told that? Anyway, they ran cross-border operations into Cambodia to kill Viet Cong in sanctuaries there. During that time, the CIA assigned Marvin to assassinate Cambodia's Crown Prince Sihanouk and make it look like the Viet Cong did it in a bid to get the Cambodians to side with the United States in the Vietnam War. For reasons Marvin will explain in his interview, he planned but then refused to carry out the killing. This sparked a chain of brutal and bizarre events that eventually led to Marvin's transformation from stone-cold killer to a born-again Christian who felt compelled to expose his deeply pathological former life. He did this by writing a book titled Expendable Elites that was published by Trine Day Books. So why am I taking you into Dan Marvin's deep dark world today to show you what he wants you to see. He wants you to see the inhumanity, the pathology of war, of unbridled power, of secret government agencies accountable to no one, arrogating to themselves the power of life and death over anyone, anywhere. This all still goes on today, every day, all around the world but you can't change what you really don't know about, which is why I think Daniel Marvin is an important messenger. What you're gonna hear today is the last videotaped interview he ever gave.
1: I arrived in Vietnam. I volunteered to go there with special forces. The day before Christmas, I reported to Colonel William Tuttle who was the commanding officer of C-4, which was the detachment that was in charge of all special forces operations in the entire 4th Corps of Vietnam. Colonel Tuttle called me into his office on Christmas morning of 1965, and asked me if I would volunteer to take the independent command at An Phu, Vietnam, which would be the first command that would be permitted to go across the border following the enemy and actually go against the enemy inside of Cambodia. At the same time he assured me that there would be no support whatsoever. There'd be no artillery support, no medevac support, no ground support, no support of any kind when we're in Cambodia and if we were caught inside Cambodia we would be dropped from the rolls as deserters from the United States Army and before he was finished talking he reminded me that it would be as if I never met him when I left his office that day because this would be a compartmentalized operation I would be totally in command as an independent operation and he would never admit that he ever had even asked me about it so when I left that room I started in my mind, taking mental notes and then transferring them to 3 by 5 cards throughout my whole time there in An Phu, Vietnam to protect me should the government decide that I was expendable. As a matter of fact, uh, in June of 1966, when I refused the uh, orders to, uh, the request, excuse me, not orders, Request to assassinate Cambodian Crown Prince Sihanouk <clears throat> that's the uh, Excuse me We're gonna to have to start that one. Off. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. Um, hmm. What was I trying to get to there?
0: You were oh, saying that... Oh, okay.
1: When I accepted the assignment, I also had the decision to make when Walter McKim brought the the request to me to arrange for the ambush and assassination of Cambodian Crown Prince Sihanouk that once I made up my mind on that and gave him a, a response to it that I would suffer any consequences from the United States if I refused to do it. That's why my book is called Expendable Elite. Believe me, we we feared absolutely no one except our government should we be declared expendable. Well, when I refused that mission to assassinate Sihanouk because President Johnson refused to act on my quid pro quo, which actually was for him to tell the American people that he was not going to allow the enemy sanctuary, safe havens, or the use of the Mekong River, in the future. When he didn't do that, then I unilaterally aborted the mission to kill Prince Sihanouk, and then I put myself uh, in jeopardy, perhaps if you would think so, for the rest of my life.
0: Um, now talk about this, this um, uh, Johnson's um, policy. I mean, w- w- what are you saying that, that the President of the United States was giving a uh, safe haven to the enemy? I mean, that sounds...
1: When he took over the White House.
0: I'm sorry, when who took over the White House? When
1: President Johnson took over the White House after John F. Kennedy was assassinated. He arranged verbally, and all those kind of things are verbally so that there's no record of it, for the enemy to have sanctuaries all along the Cambodian border. And he did that by ordering our forces never to fire into Cambodia and as a good example of what can happen on my way to my camp, we flew over a camp called Vinh which sat right on the border canal between South Vietnam and Cambodia. The captain that commanded the special forces team in that camp received a lot of rocket and mortar fire from an enemy battalion that was just on the other side of that canal killed five of his people right off and wounded a number of them, and he decided that he was going to shoot back at the enemy inside Cambodia, and he did, and he was in prison in Fort Leavenworth within two days after defying our government and shooting at the enemy that was killing his people.
0: Now, why, why did he create these safe Why did he okay these safe havens? I mean, what was the logic I, behind that?
1: It sure would be nice to know for a fact why he did it. But one thing for certain is that it was it was a tactic that was meant not to allow us to win the war. It was strictly for the, Vietnam, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese to actually win the war. Otherwise, he would have turned us loose to go after the enemy, no matter where they were. With whatever we had to fight him. <clears throat> My area, where I had an independent command, and where I did go into Cambodia against the enemy, was the only fully secure area in all of Vietnam when I turned that camp over to the Military Assistance Command of Vietnam. But it was because we fought the war to win it, and we did win it. We cleared our area of Viet Cong, the enemy, we maintained a secure border. We never lost a battle even though we were always outnumbered at least four to one. And, and outweaponed too. But the people that I was fortunate, blessed really to be with were good fighters and they were honest people only wanting to maintain their land and their occupation which was fishermen and batmen and uh, which was to farm, uh, have the bats so they could sell guano, the bat, uh, bat, leaves, <laughs> and uh, and the uh, uh, pig operations that they had. The Waha's re- would not eat any beef, period. They were forbidden by their religion, but they would eat everything from pork to uh, rats to snakes to. To uh, chickens, and it all tasted super.
0: So, uh, I don't. know, I, I still want to go back to this policy because, I mean, you were obviously it was the U.S. government policy to allow you to exist as special forces going across into Cambodia after the enemy. So, why would there be this other policy that would sort of that would work against what you were doing?
1: Well, I think. Uh, Back to the 15th day of January of 1960... Oh, excuse me, not the 15th. Let me turn okay. this back from that, from okay. that.
0: Wait, hold on. Right. Okay, go ahead.
1: Think back to the 4th day of August of 1966, when General Harold K. Johnson, the Chief of Staff of the United States Army, visited our B-team, B-42, Chau Duc, South Vietnam, and Colonel Brewer, Donald E Brewer, uh, brought all of us together, all the officers that uh, were in command of camps and that, uh, into the briefing room and he started to brief General Johnson on the enemy situation and the tactical situation. And on the map in, in front of him that he was pointing to there are huge areas inside of Cambodia, some as deep as three kilometers, that all were shaded a different color. And General Johnson stopped him, interrupted him, asked him why that the areas were shaded. And Colonel Brewer said, sir, that's because that indicates where the enemy has safe havens. And, and, uh, and General Johnson ordered him to remove those from the maps. Uh, Colonel Brewer told him, General, those really are sanctuaries, and these men that are behind you can testify to what enemy units are in those sanctuaries. And he interrupted Colonel Brewer again and ordered him to remove those that, uh, sanctuary areas from the map, saying the President of the United States has told the American people that the Cambodian government does not permit the enemies to use their territory and Colonel Brewer started to hesitate and then General Johnson got up out of his seat, walked over, bent over and said something in Colonel Brewer's ear that caused him to immediately order the operation sergeant to erase all of the safe havens. Now that's the kind of a war that we were fighting over there. I blame General Johnson and General Westmoreland who in his book, soldier reports admits that he was ordered not to tell the American people and not to tell Congress Congress not to tell Congress that the enemy had sanctuaries all along the Cambodian border and were allowed to use the Mekong River as their main supply route. Now who could order General Westmoreland not to tell Congress other than the President of the United States?
0: I've got to ask you, as, as a soldier, as an officer, as someone who understands tactics and strategies and so on, as someone who knows what the results of, of those sanctuaries being allowed to exist, what was the purpose, do you think, of that policy?
1: I think it was to maintain our presence in Vietnam and to maintain we believe, and I can't prove this, I can prove that we let the enemy... Use our river to carry their war goods and allowed them to have safe havens and could shoot at us, and we couldn't shoot at them. But I, we believe, those of us who were in special forces over there, that they use those same ships that carried all of those weapons and ammunition and explosives up to the enemy inside of Cambodia. They use them to bring the drug trade down from Cambodia and to the United
0: States. So you're saying that you think the maintain, maintenance of these, and, and I'm going to ask you to repeat my question if, this is what, if I'm interpreting what you're saying properly. You're saying that the, these safe havens were maintained so that there, so that a, there could be a, tra, a drug traffic where arms would go in to the VC, but drugs would come back out for the, to the United States?
1: I, I believe that, I can't prove the latter part of it, that they actually had drugs on the ships. But those ships did not come back empty, and Captain uh, Miles, who commanded the A-Team on the Mekong River, can tell you that those ships came back laden, just as they were laden when they went up the river, because you can tell where the watermark is on the hull of the ship. So we knew they were bringing something back in, and the only thing we could ever determine from that is that the CIA was using those ships uh, for drug running?
0: So you're basically saying then that the president of the United States, who was okaying these safe havens, had knew that the CIA was drug running.
1: Oh, yeah, I would say so. Yes.
0: Could you repeat my co- re- oh, incorporate my question into your?
1: I, I would say that the whole situation over there was developed. To allow our government through the CIA to take advantage of the possibility of running drugs using the same ships that were used to carry ammunition and weapons up to the enemy. And I do know this, that when I uh, demanded a quid pro quo in 1966, in June of 66, Demanded that President Johnson tell the American people he was going to take away the safe havens that he had authorized in Vietnam Not that he would have to say that he authorized them But that he would no longer permit safe havens for the enemy nor the use of the Mekong River and with that uh, I, I told the CIA because I was uh, had asked I had been asked to Set up an ambush plan to kill Prince Sihanouk, that I would follow through with that with 42 Vietnamese volunteers if President Johnson would honor my quid pro quo. He would not do it. President Johnson allowed, permitted, whatever word you want to use, the use of the Vietnamese government and the American military to permit uh, the the use of ships and airplanes. To move drugs out of that area.
0: What, did, what was. Who got the money for those drugs?
1: I would say the CIA would have been the beneficiary of it, and then they would use it to support whatever they were supporting, legal or illegal. The whole thing about covert operations is that there's never anything in writing. There's never any orders given other than verbally. There's never any backup for you should get caught. And there's never any government agency that can be caught uh, red-handed with what we were doing. For example, two Special Forces A-teams were used by the CIA to meet with Castro and to beat Batista on the ground to take over the government of Cuba, which was a big CIA drug-running operation.
0: What do you mean it was a big CIA drug-running operation? How did that work? Yeah.
1: I don't know how it worked, but I know that that was the reason that they put Castro in power, then then he would owe them uh, the right to do what they wanted to do.
0: And how do you know this? How do you know...
1: Just from a friend within the CIA which I could never divulge his name. I knew one of the men that was on the Special Forces A-Team, in fact I taught him in parachute rigger school how to be a parachute rigger. And he, he was part of that organization controlled by the CIA that put Castro into power. Uh, other than that, I, I can't prove about the drug running, that's so secret and You know, like in Mexico, anybody that goes against it's dead. uh, If I knew something, I'd tell you, just the same as I do of what I do
0: know. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated by the idea that Castro was put into power by special American special forces when, you know, the Bay of Pigs happened. When, you know, he's been vilified uh, by the American government. You know, how does that work?
1: It's it's interesting. The Bay of Pigs. Uh, I have my own personal. Thoughts on the Bay of Pigs. It was set up and failed because President Kennedy finally realized what was going on. Uh, you know, when in 1961, I was in France and I was a European theater air item surveillance officer and also in charge of the logistical support of unconventional covert operations in the European theater for the 10th Special Forces Group. In 1961, I worked with two teams, two A-teams from the 10th Special Forces, and developed a complete uh, plan and program to arm and equip 200 Polish freedom fighters in Poland to fight against the Russians, who was our enemy in those days. And it got to the point, it was all based on a top-secret-slash-cosmic orders that I had received to support this operation which came out of NATO and uh, with it we worked together for maybe a few weeks to develop the plan and everything and had enough uh let me have a sip yeah go ahead okay we received a, a, an order from NATO to work with the Special Forces. I was, oddly enough, the only officer at the secret Saint-Andre depot in France, which was 60 miles west of Paris, that had a top-secret cosmic clearance. Now, the cosmic part meant you were able to be involved in NATO top-secret operations. So, we had it all set up for 200 freedom fighters, weapons, ammunition, Uh, communications equipment and two teams of American Green Berets to jump in with that equipment and everything to that unit in Poland. Captain Buck Evans, who was the U.S. Army 320, I mean, U.S. Air, excuse me, U.S. Air Force 322nd Air Division. Go
0: a lot better. Okay, go ahead.
1: Captain Buck Evans, who commanded the 322nd Air Division combat control operation out of everett Air Base in France, had sent in a U.S. Air Force combat control team, dropped them into the area in Poland, which would lead the two C-130s in with the supplies and the equipment and the two teams' Green Berets. So they were already in on the ground and about an hour before the C-130 aircraft were to take off with those two teams of Green Berets and all those cargo bundles, uh, we got a message, Top Secret Cosmic, from our White House that said to cancel the operation. All we could determine, uh, speaking of we being Buck Evans and myself, was that the president had not known about this operation and that the CIA was doing this through the 10th Special Forces, which was not unusual, they worked for the CIA, uh, and that he didn't want that to happen because of international repercussions. I don't know that for a fact, but I do know that to this day, to the best of my knowledge, neither Captain Buck Evans nor myself knows the fate of that combat control team that dropped in there to organize those 200 Polish freedom fighters.
0: You know, I thought the CIA was only supposed to do intelligence gathering. Since when did the CIA actually have control of special forces and could order special forces to, you know, kill people, assassinate people, or, uh, you know, do military uh, operations like that, covert military operations?
1: All I know is that uh, President Kennedy wanted to take that part of the CIA's operations away from him. That was one of the strongest points behind their uh, work to kill President Kennedy. I know when the, when the uh, CIA instructors, when I was going through Special Forces training, just two months after Kennedy was killed, three months, uh, we were told how that whole situation was set up with four different Mafia hitmen, two of them from U.S. Mafia, one who I happen to know personally, and another one, and two Mafia hitmen from the Corsican Mafia, who had set up along sites leading from the ambush site of President Kennedy to the hospital and they were there with spotters, with high-powered binoculars, and with orders to kill the president if he wasn't determined to be too far gone to live. And they set up all of that uh, information and procedures, and we were taught in CIA training, uh, in Special Forces training, that the CIA used Green Berets, As assassins and terrorists and saboteurs outside of the United States and use mafia inside the United States. Now that's what Kennedy was trying to get stopped when he got killed. I imagine that is still
0: going on. Now I I want to go back to Mackham because it seems like you he met he came to your camp three weeks after you got there? Right. Now, but he didn't come at that it had point nothing to.
1: Nothing to do with the assassination. Of CIA. Okay, what, only to bring that paramilitary? What do they call that? Uh, um, the CIA's three-part covert operation action program. Okay,
0: wait. Could you? Okay, just just hmm. talk about how three weeks after you arrived in um, in South Vietnam, in South, that was January of '66, right?
1: Right. It was on January 19th, which was just three weeks after I took command of the independent operation of Fu, where I would have the authority to do whatever I wanted done or didn't want done uh, in Fu is when Major Foy and I were told by our intelligence people that the CIA covert operations team was coming into our district we went down and met them on the road coming up from Chowduck, where they'd come. And we asked them what they were doing there and they explained, uh, Walter McKemp explained to me and Major Foy that they came there to uh, help us to uh, rid ourselves of communist sympathizers, so to speak. And I started to get on them real tough. and. And Major Foy Van Lee asked me if he could handle it more diplomatically. <laughs> and we just told him to leave the district and never to come back.
0: Did he pay attention to you?
1: Oh, well, they had to. because We told them we'd shoot him if they didn't. It was our area. It was my control. I even uh, used that same threat when our B-team commander wanted to Uh, send uh, boats up the river to us to try and bring my team back into the B team and leave the wah to themselves. I just threatened them with shooting at them, and in fact, we did shoot over the bow of the boats and threw a couple mortar rounds in front of the boats, and they never tried to come back up the river again.
0: So, um, okay, so let's, let's, uh, you say here, that Mackham was the one who came with plans, uh, with the with the uh, plans for uh, killing. Two days after, um, I'm I'm just trying to get the. It says here that on on June 10th, that he came to ask you to assassinate. Sihanouk, uh, right. and then June 12th he came back with maps and ambush plans.
1: Came with the things that I asked him to bring.
0: Okay, could you could you tell that story just. Yeah.
1: On the 10th of June, 1966, Walter McKim and a pretty blonde lady who he claimed was a reporter who took no notes the whole time she was there, Uh, I get, from what I understand from who I knew in the CIA, he always had a girlfriend with him most of the time, but uh, Walter McKim came to my camp. I met with him privately in our command bunker and he asked me if I would volunteer to organize an assassination of Cambodian Crown Prince Sihanouk. Well, I had no love for Sihanouk at the time. I thought he was our enemy because I thought it was him who allowed those safe havens inside of Vietnam and not our president. And I told him, certainly I would, but I said I would have a quid pro quo. And he said, what's that? And he said, you know, you don't, more or less he said, you don't give a quid pro quo pro-quotes to the CIA and I said what I demand is that President Johnson tell the American people that he is no longer going to permit the enemy sanctuaries in Cambodia nor the use of the Mekong River and then I've got a captain friend of mine in Special Forces who's standing by to read that in the New York Times and to let us know via the uh, what we call the ionospheric bounce into my single side man radio that president johnson had in fact told the american people he was taking away those safe havens he didn't do it and when uh, walter McCam came back the third time the second time he came back to bring the maps and the plans the exact ambush site where prince senuk went once a year up to visit this temple, that's why it had to be this specific time. And there was a, a bridge site there, it was perfect for ambush. <clears throat> and the third time he came back, he didn't have the, the answer to the quid pro quo. And that's when I kicked him out of my camp and canceled the mission myself, unilaterally aborted it. And he told me then, turned around, he's on his way to his little white whirly bird, Air America Chopper. He says, You can't fight the systems, captain, because you can't win. And within a couple days, we had word of an entire Arvin regiment coming down the river to wipe out our camp, and that started a whole new chain of of circumstances when we found that out. What happened? Well, uh, we of course were under attack on, on the northern part of our area by a force of 2,400 of the enemy. And then all of a sudden we got so-called friendly forces to attack us of 1,200 heavily armed, even armored personnel carriers and anti-tank weapons coming up the Chowduck River that would stay in Chowduck overnight and then come up the Basak River and attack us. Major Foy Van Lee uh, took action to go to the Wah House Central Committee and asked the Chairman of the Central Committee to go meet with General Kuang Van Dang, who was a friend of the Wah House. and General Dang, once he got the news, and he'd been to my camp a couple times, when he got the news and he got a hold of Colonel William Desabri, who was the, his senior advisor, American advisor, got in Colonel Desabry's chopper, and with four armed escorts, he flew over the Arvin Division, and Colonel Desbury actually called down to the American advisors that were with that regiment and he asked them why they were on the way to attack Fu. And the captain in charge of the advisors said because there's a renegade captain named Marvin who's leading the Wahaos against the central government. Well, uh, General Dang, before he left Canto, to go over the Arvin Division, had called Premier Key, who the CIA had worked with, to get that Arvin Regiment to come attack us. And General Dang simply told him he was taking charge. He didn't want brother killing brother in South Vietnam. And then he turned that regiment back, ordered him back, and flew into our camp with Colonel Deserbray and assured us all his personal guarantee of amnesty for Vietnamese and Americans.
0: You know what's fascinating to me about this story? It's almost like the CIA or the puppeteers here. I mean, it's like if they can actually muster up an entire regiment? over a yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, see they were working closely with Premier Key, who was a very much pro CIA man. And Premier Key could order that regiment without General Dang knowing it, not rightfully. General Dang should have known about it and he wouldn't have allowed it to happen. But it was a compartmentalized operation. Otherwise, General Dang could not know that one of his regiments was on the way to attack us. Because there's always breaks in the order of command in any compartmentalized covert operation. Colonel Brewer, who should have been my commander, had no idea what I was doing up in Anfu and he got very mad, threatened to destroy me, said he hated me because I didn't follow his orders. Well, I didn't have to. I was in an independent command, but I couldn't even tell him that I was in an independent command, and Colonel Tuttle couldn't tell him because then he'd be giving up the ghost, so to speak, on, on the plan itself.
0: Well, what did Brewer want you to do and, and, and that you weren't doing, that he thought you weren't doing?
1: Well, one of the things he wanted to send Patrol boat rivers, U.S. Navy patrol boat rivers up, up the river and uh, patrol the Basac River, which I controlled, up until within six miles of the border. Well, I mean six kilometers, I think it was, of the border. Well, all the enemy activity is on the honor right near the border, so they had them patrolling the river. And while they were doing it, they were swamping all of my civilian people's sampans, the wah So I let them stay there three days and they refused to, to uh, run their boats quietly on the river. So I kicked them out of my area and Colonel Brewer was mad about that. He was mad because uh, I wouldn't... Uh, I didn't ask him for approval when we took over the northern area of Amphoe, and wiped the VC out of that area, and and then I wouldn't uh, basically communicate with him hardly at all. In fact, I've never even met him until months after he had taken command of the B team. He stayed. We, we were very careful who I allowed into our area. We didn't allow any American reporters, by the way, because we figured that they were all controlled by the CIA, where I trusted the Vietnamese reporters implicitly. And in fact, I'll be giving you some of the articles that were written there. Uh, it was just one of those ways, I my job was to secure that area and protect those people. You know, when I talked to uh, General Tommy Franks when he was in charge of the war over there in Iraq and I asked him to let me know which of the two things that bothered him the most about getting ready to go over there in Iraq and he started to tell me and he turned it over, turned me over to his Lieutenant Colonel Aide and because he had to go to a meeting and he told me well the general, biggest problem was that not a, not one person in the a group that, that recommended courses of actions for the Iraq War had ever been in combat. And that he only got half the people that he wanted to invade Iraq because, in his words, he wanted to be able to secure an area and get that area functioning the same as we were trained. When you go in and take over a village, You make sure you need a force in that village to secure it and to maintain the government uh, operations within that village. Oddly enough, when he retired, General Franks, and he wrote his own book, which I've got a copy of, he disclaimed both of those things. And in fact, he praised our government for giving him the kind of people, the number of people that he wanted and the right advice on going Why
0: do you think he did that?
1: because he was offered something that was much better than being harangued for telling the truth.
0: Wow, that's
1: profound. It was was interesting because it all tied in with his being given the job, I'm sure a substantial sum, to organize the never-before-existing Army Museum. In fact, he wrote me trying to get me to help on it, and I had read his book and I didn't help on it at all he lied to the american people in that book
0: by saying that
1: right by by not admitting that he only got half the people he wanted and that he did not have the right kind of advice going into that war
0: so okay so now i i want to talk about the um assassination plans right could you give me the details of from the moment you started to plan it to what what was gonna, how you were gonna do it and who you were gonna use, etc.
1: This is the assassination of Prince Seema. Right. And Walter McKenna brought the request, and I accepted it, like I told you before. And I asked him for the maps and other information that I needed to make it possible for us to do a good job. Uh, noticing uh, that uh, I would get all the volunteers, or thinking that I'd get all the volunteers that I would need. I needed 42 men based on what Major Foy and I had put together as a plan, 102 volunteered to do that. And it's almost, you know, like Green Berets, a lot of the things they volunteer for are what we consider suicide missions, but we figured we'll make it back whether it's a suicide mission or not, and that's what they did. <clears throat> So we started, I, I never told my men, my team, what they were training these men to do. But they did wonder why they had to strip themselves of any identification. They in fact had to have uh, false information sewed inside of their black pajamas that would identify them as being Viet Cong. So that when they went in there and actually killed Prince Cienuc, if any of them were killed, and left behind, they would be felt to be uh, Viet Cong. So the Cambodian people would then rally up against the Viet Cong and help us to win the war in South Vietnam. That was the plan as a CIA brought it to me. Uh, so we got the volunteers, we got them uh, equipped and armed and everything else just as if they were Viet Cong and waited for, uh, Walter McKim to come back with the results of my quid pro quo request. Meanwhile we uh, captured a a large enough boat to take that crew up there unseen in the hold of the boat uh, up to Phnom Penh, Cambodia and to where they had to get off to uh, get into the ambush site. And we had all of that organized. I think it would have gone very well, when the, when the CIA asked us for what our exit plans were from the ambush, I refused to tell them, because Major Foy and I told them, basically, we feel if we told you how we were coming back, you'd make sure that we didn't make it back. So all the evidence of CIA activity be gone.
0: So where, where exactly was the ambush site? What did it look like?
1: Oh, I, I, I had to look at something to tell you that. Okay. It was a, it was a bridge site, a timber trestle bridge, uh, over a creek, on the road to this temple that he visited every year faithfully, on a certain day, and that's where the ambush site would be at, and we just put people on both sides, and hit him, so that his force that was guarding him. Would be on the other side of the bridge when we blew it, and they couldn't come back then and attack our people. You know? So it was a good plan. Uh, we would have made it, except President Johnson didn't want us. Didn't want to take away the enemy's safe havens.
0: Well, considering um, what you what you know now, hmm. which is that he wasn't involved in in um, allowing the safe havens and considering that you had planned to kill him. If you had a chance to talk to Cianook, what would you say?
1: I I would tell him to just please come forward with the truth of his involvement in permitting the enemy to use certain areas but not to strike out at us against from those areas. And that he never, and I have this in writing for the ambassador that's writing King Sihanouk's biography. He never allowed. He never refused American force entry into Vietnam, into Cambodia, to go after the enemy. I'll give you a copy of that. Well, letter so, I have from the ambassador.
0: So you're saying that he never refused Americans. Uh, um,
1: Otherwise, it wasn't him that said that it'd be a sanctuary. There'd be a safe haven for them to, to, you know, set up camp and stuff like that. But they were not to attack from those areas. And if they did, he did not tell the Americans that they couldn't counterattack. Basically.
0: So you're saying that Sihanouk did um, did not allow the Americans to? did. He did. He so did. essentially, Sihanouk was not the enemy here.
1: Well, you know, we attacked... Cambodia almost every day for almost seven months and I don't believe that Sihanouk ever lodged lodged an official complaint against the US forces but we were very careful and we made certain that the Cambodian government knew that we had warned all the people of where we would be going after the enemy and telling them to stay clear of those areas so that we wouldn't hurt any of them. And I think one of our proudest moments is when we finished clearing all that area and making it secure for our forces and for our people there, the Vietnamese Wahos. In August of 1966, on the first day of August of 66, when I turned that camp over, we had not killed or wounded one Cambodian civilian even though we had killed 532 of the enemy inside their territory.
0: Well, what if you had been successful at killing Sihanouk, knowing what you know now? How would you feel?
1: Knowing what I know now, I don't think we have the right to kill any foreign leader. I I think that... uh, Justice should be meted out as justice should be meted out. Um, I volunteered uh, to do it believing what I had been told about Siena. None of us believed that he was a friend of the United States and maybe he wasn't a friend of the United States, but he wasn't our enemy.
0: So and in a way are you re- are you relieved that you? Uh...
1: Oh, I'm, I'm very pleased that I, that I wasn't allowed to go through that because of our president, really.
0: But and would he you say was, is... Is there a conversation that you would like to have with Sihanouk about those days?
1: Yes. Uh, if I had a chance to talk to him, which I may, yet, yeah, uh, I guess he's uh, recovering in Thailand from some serious medical problems. Uh, I would tell him that we appreciated the fact that his people were very uh, compatible with our being across the border from him. Most of what we drank in that area was Cambodian beer, oddly enough, because the water wasn't much good. Uh, The border crossing between us and Cambodia, the wide bridge, was open to females both ways. Uh, all, all during daylight hours, uh, we we had uh, close ties with the officials uh, of the villages inside of Cambodia and our villages in Vietnam.
0: So, when you say it was open to females, I mean it, what? There, it was not open to males. It
1: was not open to males. No, the males are the soldiers.
0: Oh, I see. And
1: That's why I had 12 female spies and they could go across and pretend to go shopping and then disappear and wait till the next day and come back with all the information that I needed and but we never ever allowed them to question the Cambodian civilian citizens because then they would be put in jeopardy Our our girls, ladies, very brave, we lost one of them. They just go out and visually uh, determine where the enemy was and what they had equipment wise and everything and report back to us. They used also four uh, female spies against us, which you read about in a book, which we tortured and then they killed. Who killed them? The VC. We worked it so that it appeared that they become friendly with us and we bought them all new clothes and everything and then we sewed inside of their garments uh, something that would turn the VC against them and we found them after we released them and we let them walk freely around our area and everything up right right next to the border uh, under guard. But they, the enemy couldn't see the guard, and when we released them and they walked across that bridge, within 24 hours we found them in the canal, dead with the tongues cut out.
0: I'll tell you, there's a lot of reptilian thinking that went into your job.
1: Yes. (laughs) There's no such a thing as fun in war. It's a terrible thing. Uh, You know, when somebody. He gets real upset about General Patton ordering that prisoners of war be killed. Well, when you only got so many forces to move forward, it was in his judgment, he needed all his forces to fight, not to guard. I ordered my people to try and hit as many of the enemy in the lower extremities so they couldn't walk, so to take two people to carry them off. Nine chances out of ten, we'd get the two people as they were carrying them off. War is not a kind thing. But what I protected was my people and the Cambodian people. The enemy killed a lot of my people and you just couldn't protect, you know. But uh, we never hurt anybody. That's why I ran one Greenbury lieutenant out of my area when he brought in a team to help me and he wanted me to destroy this village with artillery fire before he went through it. And I said, those are my people's houses. But it's not the enemy houses. And well, how do you tell the difference between the enemy and and the friendly? And I said, very simple, like Major Foy told me when I got here, the enemy shoots at you. (laughs) uh... So I took over his team, put one of my sergeants in charge of it.
0: So where's Mackham now? Do you know? Did you have any contact with him after your... uh...
1: Oh yes. Macken was listed as an expert witness for the plaintiffs in the trial against Chris Milligan and myself. As soon as I found that out, I told Chris I'd be happy to have him be there as a witness because we could prove that he couldn't tell the truth in court, that he signed a secrecy oath, that he couldn't tell anything that would bear against the CIA. And then we notified the judge and the plaintiffs' attorneys That we had hired Douglas Valentine as our expert witness and let me tell you it was probably just within minutes of them finding that out that they pulled back McKemp he never showed up.
0: Now why why was he why would he be afraid of Doug Valentine? Doug
1: Valentine is the world's most renowned uh, expert on CIA assassination programs. He had interviewed Walter McKemp twice in fact uh, I have notes of the last interview in 1988, which he mentions my area specifically in there. Uh, Douglas Valentine is just a man of great courage uh, that uh, I hope and pray uh, lives long enough to get even more of the truth out.
0: So let's go, let's go now to um, get your getting out of Vietnam and um, the Amnesty fearmen. How now you just, you got out of Vietnam and came home, mm. what happened? What happened? I mean this trial occurred. I came
1: home to go to a career course in Fort Lee, Virginia. <clears throat> and during the career course I got a call only six months after I left for Vietnam, from Vietnam tell me they're going to send orders to me to go to Alaska. And I said, why Alaska? And, and they said, well, nothing special, just an assignment up there. And I, and I said, well, you know, I like to go where there's danger or where there's some serious thing that, that needs me, you know? And uh, I was that kind of a guy, okay? Maybe a little bit blown up about myself being able to do things. And I feared nobody. And so. He canceled the orders, and then two weeks later he called back and he said, you're going to be going to the 46th Special Forces in Thailand. And I said, why, what's going on? And he says, it's so serious that we can't tell you. You'll find out when you get there. And when I arrived at the 46th Special Forces in Thailand, in front of the desk that I would take over is a box that's about the size you put weapons in. And I asked uh, Lieutenant Crummy, C-R-U-M-M-E-Y, who would be my assistant in the logistics system, what was in the box. And he said, there's weapons in there. And I said, hold him, to open the box. And there was uh, one M1D sniper rifle and a couple carbines and one other weapon. And I asked him where they were going. And he said, well, a certain captain, uh, a black captain actually, was shipping them back to his place in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, that they, I asked him where'd they get them from? So said, well, they came from the Special Forces in Vietnam, had captured them from the enemy, who had captured them from us in previous battles, so they were off the books. And I so, said, well, has he shipped any others? And he said, about 120 weapons have gone to Detroit from Special Forces illegal Operation. So I reported this to the Criminal Investigation Division of the Army and they sent one of their investigators to me in Loeburi, Thailand and said, we want to have a detailed um, interrogation of you uh, but we gotta wait till you get back to the states. And I just got there. And I said, why? I said, well if we investigate you now and take your statement will all be dead within a couple of days, and it's because of the special forces and CIA type operations. So I agreed, and believe it or not, and I worried about it a little bit. A year from them, I was I was at Fort at uh, Defense Depot Mechanicsburg, and two CID personnel came in, did a I think a 19-page single-space interrogatory. Uh, about the gun-running operations and everything else and I tied that all up with an FBI investigation that I demanded after that and I sent that all to William Pepper who represented the King family. Well it turns out this whole gun-running operation was just a part of the infiltration of the black militant organizations and the use of the special forces to monitor Dr. King's movements So set it up for the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther
0: King. Now, wait a second. First of all, I got to. So my final thoughts on this are, you know, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, the Pentagon Papers whistleblower, he proved through the publication of those papers that, you know, the entire Vietnam War was a war crime. And as you heard from Marvin, within that war crime, there were war crimes within war crimes. Covert ops, false flag operations, secret agencies, state crimes hidden under the corrupt blanket of national security prerogatives have got to end if we're gonna survive as a species and end all this endless warmongering. The Rome statutes that established the international criminal courts was a court, was a good start. But now is the time for the nation who ratified and signed the court's mandate to twist the arms of those who did not, including the United States. Looking at the list of nations that didn't sign points, of course, to those most in need of accountability by the court particularly for war crimes. Think about that for a while. See you next week.